Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Okapel. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we will be discussing the 1965 musical, The Man of La Manda. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. So Raymond, are you ready to talk about illusion and reality and idealism and madness and a musical that you didn't know existed until about 24 hours ago? I have never been so anxious to escape reality as I have now. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I did just watch this musical yesterday, and I, it was definitely one of those moments where I was like, where has this musical been my whole life? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, it makes me really want to read the book now. It's, I will say, the the pure idealism of the musical is not quite what you find in the book but it is good it is good um i read don quixote in high school and then list or did i listen to it first i think i listened to the impossible dream in the context of reading the book because i was really into musicals sort of for the first time at about the same time as i was reading don quixote and i was like oh there's a musical version and so i went and listened to the impossible dream and a bunch of the other songs and then watched this movie and really liked it and then kind of forgot about it for a long time until it came back on the Mars Hill list so it's fun to be talking about it again yeah I'll be I'll be curious what your opinion is on on maybe the changes that the musical makes as opposed to the novel well because Don Quixote is uh famously one of the oldest celebrated as being the first novel ever written and that's a really interesting thing because it's a novel that's fundamentally about a man who makes up who who creates things out of thin air um so what that does in terms of the form of the novel and what you think the novel is essentially something saying i think would be interesting i'd be interested to hear what your opinion is about that but first you probably want to talk a little bit about the background of the musical itself yes yes so uh the musical itself was first produced in 1965 uh its book was by dale wasserman and music by mitch lay um important thing actually is that the the movie that Raymond and I both watched because this is the, the version you can watch is a movie that was made in 1975 no 1971 uh with Peter O'Toole starring as Cervantes slash Don Quixote um that is the movie version which is distinct from the stage version which was first put together and produced off-Broadway in 1965. Uh, the lyrics were originally by the poet W.H. Auden, whom I love, uh, but then they, they fired him because, uh, for two reasons. First of all, they said that his poetry made bad lyrics, um, that good poetry is almost never good lyrics, and so uh, he didn't actually write good lyrics, apparently. But then also, his lyrics were too biting and st satirical for what they wanted to be doing. So, fired him. They hired Joe Darian, who ended up writing... The, the lyrics we know now from Man of La Mancha. The musical, uh, this may surprise some people to learn, is not supposed to be a faithful adaptation of the book Don Quixote. And Wasserman, who wrote the book, uh, 
the book, meaning the stage play, um, gets upset when people talk about the musical as a musical version of Don Quixote, which is originally what I thought the musical was, um, but but he considered it to be something completely different that was inspired by the book Don Quixote, but was just a completely different animal. Yeah, because actually something similar happened with The Princess Bride, and I kind of thought of The Princess Bride when I saw this movie, uh, because there's a frame narrative, and it's a fairy tale within a frame narrative, and the frame narrative is, you know, uh, this kind of older, more poetic, more quixotic mentor uh, give, telling, relating a story to a recalcitrant uh, individual, in this case was his, I think his nephew, right? Yep. Um, but the original Princess Bride, the Princess Bride book, who who wrote it? I forget his name. Uh, Goldman. William Goldman. Goldman. Yeah. The, he was also reinterpreting a, a, an older fairy tale, which in the mm-hmm. original, original was like l- rather dull. And he was sort of selecting also from that fairy tale and, and reinterpreting it in The Princess Bride. And the, so the musical itself comes from an era of experimental musical theater when people were still sort of figuring out what musical theater was and what they wanted it to be. Um, It came out about 16 years before the musical Cats, which if you know anything about musical theater and about Broadway in the West End, the musical Cats changed everything. There's really pre-Cats and then there's post-Cats, which is why Men of La Mancha may be a little bit slower or feel a little different than phantom of the opera or les mis or the poperas of the of the 80s because that just introduced a completely different era i think that's also probably why a lot of people don't know about the man of la mancha it also i've heard it said that man of la mancha is one of the first stage versions or musical versions of a um that that celebrates an idea more than a plot it's less about characters who make choices and do things not a lot happens necessarily in the story it's really about a concept um it's a musical about a theme which makes it unique that's not something that normally happens in theater let alone musical theater so all right so can you can we talk a little bit about what what the what what the story is about what's what's the setup yeah so we open with uh miguel de cervantes who is the characterized version of the author of Don Quixote. And he has been thrown in prison because the Spanish Inquisition is accusing him of being a heretic. And while he's in prison, he immediately gets jumped by all these prisoners who want to steal all his possessions. Because there's this this justice system that operates within the prison. Um, They're all waiting to be called by the Inquisition, but they're told they might wait an hour, they might wait years, they don't know how long it's going to be. And um, in order to defend himself and his possessions, Cervantes convinces them to put him on trial and, and see whether or not they think that uh, he's innocent or guilty of whatever they're charging him with. And they discover that he's a poet. And so uh, there's a quote they, where there's... They charge him as a bad poet. Yes, the quote is uh, the Duke, who's sort of the antagonistic character in the, in the prison... He says, I charge you with being an idealist, a bad poet, and an honest man. Which is an interesting <laughs> interesting set of charges. Um, to which Cervantes replies, uh, guilty. But then 
asks uh, to be allowed to put on a defense anyway because he says the jury may want to treat me differently despite the fact that I'm guilty of those charges. So he's not going to deny the charges. He's going to make the jury see the charges differently. And they let him, and throughout his defense, he tells the story of Don Quixote, who is this gentleman named Alonso Quijana, I think, who uh, is an older gentleman who is living in Spain, who reads too many books, and his brains rot, and he goes insane, and he thinks that he is a knight errant named Don Quixote, and he convinces this fellow, also somewhat weak-minded man who is his friend, um, his name's Sancho, he convinced him to be his squire. And so they go out into the world and go on all these crazy adventures. They see a windmill and Don Quixote is convinced that it's a giant. And so he attacks the windmill and uh, has a fight with what he thinks is a giant, but it's actually just a windmill spinning around. He loses the fight (laughs) with the windmill and has to be taken to an inn nearby, which he believes is this beautiful castle run by this uh, lord, when really it's just this innkeeper who has no status in society. And there he meets a prostitute whose name is Aldonza, but he immediately sees her and declares her to be his sweet and pure lady, Dulcinea. My lady, think to put me to the test. Oh, sweet sovereign of my captive heart, how could I fail thee when I know have dreamed thee too long, never seen thee or touched thee, but known thee with all of my heart. Half a prayer, half a song, thou hast always been with me, though we have been always apart. Uh, and the first time he sees her, he says, a sweet lady, fair virgin. The joke being, obviously, she's not a virgin. She's a prostitute. Um, and she laughs at him and thinks that that's silly. And everyone else who knows her laughs and thinks that's silly. Um, and at first, people are kind of flabbergasted and then a little bit annoyed as he continues to call everything something that it's not. Um, and then throughout his his wild adventures, uh, he's being chased by a doctor I believe his name is Dr. Carusco. I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Dr. Carusco, who wants to catch Don Quixote in order to, you know, cure him of this madness. And uh, Don Quixote eventually comes face to face with this doctor who is masquerading as Don Quixote's imagined arch nemesis, who's this man in the Enchanter. And the doctor presents himself as the knight of the mirror who shows Don Quixote supposedly what he actually is and uh, through a mirror. And then he uh, falls ill, thinks that maybe he's going to die, ends up basically being cured at the very end of the movie of his madness. He doesn't remember being Don Quixote. He just remembers being the old man that he was before until... Aldonza, the prostitute, shows up and reminds him of the fact that he was Don Quixote. And he briefly jumps back into action and becomes Don Quixote for one final moment before he uh, 
before he dies. And the very last scene of the movie, or the last scene that we see in the sort of Don Quixote universe, is Sancho crying over his master being dead, and he calls Aldonza, Aldonza, he uses her real name, and she corrects him and says, no, Dulcinea. So she takes on this persona, Dulcinea, that Don Quixote gave to her. And then we jump back to the frame narrative. We jump back to Cervantes in prison. Cervantes is called before the Inquisition. And the men of the prison tell him, read as well as you did here, and you may not burn. And he replies, I have no intention of burning. And walks out as they all sing Don Quixote's uh, characteristic song, which is to dream the impossible dream. Because they've been given new hope that maybe um, if you try to reach the unreachable star that makes your life important and worthwhile, even if you lose, even if you don't achieve what you were hoping to achieve. That was a really good summary. I, I would add, I want to add a little bit, uh, an interesting bit at the beginning of that is that um, Cervantes is about to have all of his possessions destroyed and he says i'm fine with all of my possessions being destroyed except for this one thing and this thing is the book um, yes and so he's very anxious about protecting that one particular thing um which kind of piques our interest because we don't really know very much about him at this point um but it becomes pretty clear i mean you can infer about you know 10 or 20 minutes into the movie that the book that he's trying to protect is obviously the story that he's telling although the characters don't really find out that find that out until the very end yeah, and it's also, I think, important and worth noting that uh, the writers of this musical called it Man of La Mancha, the idea being that the Man of La Mancha wasn't Don Quixote, it was Cervantes. This is really a story about Miguel de Cervantes, and Don Quixote is just a way of telling us about Cervantes. They're really the same person. <clears throat> yeah, so what I think is interesting is that the, the musical itself ki kind of testifies to almost like a modern speculation or commentary on the man Cervantes because we don't actually know a whole lot about him. And so part of what the frame narrative is is attempting to accomplish is is exploring why they think Cervantes would have even conceived of of, of the idea of Don Quixote to begin with. Uh, because it's a very strange idea for that sort of thing to just kind of like pop out of nowhere onto the scene of English literature. I mean, not English, well, literature. It was Spanish <laughs> at that time. Yeah. The first big important question that we're immediately, immediately forced to think about is this idea of idealism, seeing the world as it should be versus realism, seeing the world the way that it really is. And I will, before we really dig into that discussion, I'd like to point out that our first episode ever was on Town, which is also a musical in on the Mars Hill list. And it actually also deals with a very similar theme because Orpheus is described as uh, the, the refrain that's said about Orpheus is he's a poor boy, but he has a gift to give. He can make you see that the world should be in spite of the way that it is, which is also what Don Quixote does. So I think that's interesting that that's, that's maybe a common theme that we find in musicals mm -hmm. more often than in other in other media and other ways of writing stories. Uh, so w what do you think? Is Don Quixote's world real? And maybe that begs the question, What what is real? <laughs> what does it mean for something to be real? 
Well, artists always seem to have a bit of an identity crisis about themselves, and since that most of these musicals are all created by artists, maybe they work a little bit of their insecurity into it, but there's always that little bit of element of, I think, self-doubt that people are dealing with, with like, um, you know, what is actually the value of what I'm doing? And you can see actually this problem happening in WandaVision, you know, in, the, in our other episode, but it has the sort of the opposite the opposite message because in that sense Wanda's creations about reality actually need to be rejected in service of you know a more sobering and maybe a little bit less idealistic reality but the actual narrative thrust of this story is in the opposite direction because we start in the prison we start in the prison we don't start in the tv show like WandaVision we start in the prison and we actually progress towards progress progress towards the idealism but I had a, I there's a I have a story so the, you know what Don Quixote kind of thought made me think of is when we were kids my dad used to play this game when we were driving in car in a in our car that he claimed that he could make the car fly and mm. and he was always and we were always like make the car fly car fly dad and he's like okay I'm going to make the car fly and he would be like doing like a countdown like five four three and every single time he was about to make the car take off he's like oh there's a stoplight <laughs> oh, there's there's a telephone pole. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> and he would come up. That's or adorable. if there weren't any if there weren't any telephone poles or stoplights around, then he would like make some delays. Like, oh, the engines aren't working, you know. Except except for one time, one time that he actually made the car fly, and it was we were at the foot of a hill, and he gunned it up the hill and rolled the windows down, you know. And he's like, he made all these sound effects. And we were like, we lost our minds. We thought it was the coolest thing ever. That's so um, cute. But um, the the point of that story, though, is that the reason I'm relating that is that there was something about the belief that the car could fly that we all knew. I don't know. It's hard to even talk about, like, the psychology of how we thought about things as kids. But when you play make-believe as a kid... I don't know whether we actually make a division in our minds between, okay, this is real and this is make-believe. Like, our minds don't don't operate in that way in that time. And, you know, I think that we all kind of, like, accepted. I don't know if, again, it's hard to articulate, but it's like we accepted that, that, that the car didn't actually fly, but that didn't make it any less real to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was still, I think there's just something about the magic of, of imagination in childhood the you know the possibility to imagine something makes it you know we're still we're no less enchanted by the fact that it's happening in our imaginations um i think in modern days you know we need as adults we need lots of assistance to our imagination if we want to play make-believe so disney world will go way out of his way to make sure that you get a truly immersive experience but when you're a kid i mean you didn't really need all these crutches to assist your imagination. You just needed a little like, you know, you didn't need an actual lightsaber. You just needed a stick. A stick would do. And, and, um, I think that it was, it gives us the, the, the imagination is extremely, an extremely powerful tool. So, so to talk about whether those things that happen when we're kids are real or, or not real is almost like, like a moot point. What was your original question? You were talking about idealism, I think. Yeah, the the whole question of whether the world that Don Quixote creates yeah, or envisions yeah. or sees, it, whether it real that's or real 
And I mean, if it is, what does that mean? What do we mean when we say it's real? Because obviously this is an inn. It's not a castle in the way that we think about a castle being real. And this isn't a real uh, lord of a castle. He doesn't have any titles. There are, mm -hmm. There's a distinction between the reality of the people and the lives that they've lived and then the world that Don Quixote is seeing, but yet the, the musical, the story is affirming the goodness of Don Quixote calling all these things something that that they're not really. Yeah, and there's also and it and there's also a sense in which his interpretation almost works. Because like this is why I was talking about like my dad coming up with all these sort of like little explanations for, for what happened, you know, presuming that the car could fly the whole time. Like, when Don Quixote gets defeated by the windmill, he offers his rationalization, which is that the giant was under a spell, which got turned, in, and he got turned into a windmill. So, you have to speculate, like, what exactly the, what he, what is it that he actually sees? Because it seems that he did actually accept the reality that whatever he was fighting was a windmill. So mm -hmm. it's not like he doesn't see the windmill. He just has a different interpretation of the story or the, the narrative shape that the windmill is embedded within. At one point he says, so Aldonza keeps coming after him to be like, why, why do you see the world this way? Why do you need to call me Dulcinea? Why do you need to say this is a castle? What is it about this world that makes you do what you do? And he says... I come in a world of iron to make a world of gold. Why do you do these things? What things? It's ridiculous, the things you do. I come in a world of iron to make a world of gold. The world's a dung heap, and we are maggots that crawl on it. No. My lady knows better in her heart. What's in my heart? will get me halfway to hell. And you, Senor Don Quixote, your head is going to end up a stranger to your neck. That doesn't matter. What does? Only that I follow the quest. That for your quest. What does it mean? Quest? The mission of each true knight is duty. Nay, is privilege. Dream the impossible dream to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go. Which necessitates that he sees that the world is made of iron. He's not ignoring mm -hmm. that. He's not saying everything is gold. He's saying, I have come into this world of iron to make a world of gold. And that the way he does that isn't by saying, well, look at all this iron. Time to make it gold or time to work really hard and fix it. He just comes in and declares it gold. He looks at it and says, this inn is a castle and this stupid shaving basin is the golden helmet of Mambrino and it protects the wearer or whatever. Or this... Mm -hmm. Um, this windmill is a giant and this prostitute is a princess. And by calling those things, 
something different than maybe what they technically are. It's not necessarily that he doesn't see what they really are. It's that he's making them something more beautiful, but he has to call them those things first. He has to treat them as if that's what they were in order to make them that thing. Right. So then the question comes, like, is he actually mad or not? And so here's a quote I'm going to play here uh, from the musical by uh which i think is just an excellent delivery from from peter o'toole but you see cervantes there is a difference between reality and illusion and a difference between these prisoners and your men of lunacy i'd say rather men whose illusions were very real much the same thing isn't it really why are you poets so fascinated with madmen we have much in common You both turn your backs on life. We both select from life. A man has to come to terms with life as it is. Life as it is. I've lived for over 40 years and I've seen... life as it is. Pain. Misery. Cruelty beyond belief. I've heard all the voices of God's noblest creature. Moans from bundles of filth in the streets. I've been a soldier and a slave. I've seen my comrades fall in battle or die more slowly under the lash in Africa. I've held them at the last moment. These were men who saw life as it is. But they died despairing. No glory, no brave last words. Only their eyes, filled with confusion, questioning why. I do not think they were asking why they were dying, but why they had ever lived. And life itself seems lunatic. Who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. To seek treasure where there is only trash. Too much sanity may be madness. And maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. Oh, Peter O'Toole is so good. So good. Um, I think one thing that that speech makes clear that's so important to the theme of the musical is that when you ask the question of is what Don Quixote sees real well what does it mean to see what's real what does it mean for something to be real if so much of life is what your perspective is on that thing right it almost seems cliche to say it all depends on your point of view or your perspective but it, but it kind of is. And actually, yeah. you know what that made me think of was, was um, our last podcast, uh, the story of the Jesuit priests who were struggling with the, the, the priests who were being martyred, martyred in Japan. And one of the things that he was struggling with his own perception of the sense that these priests were suffering and being martyred for what was apparently no reason. And yeah. he was, and that was exactly what Cervantes was struggling with is that like these deaths don't seem to have any meaning in them. And his response to that is to say, rather, I'm just going to choose what I think that this ought to mean, to to be an idealist, essentially. 
And that, that that's where we get the whole, the difference, the relationship between poets and madmen is that they select from life. They select the narrative, which is meaningful. Right. Which actually, I don't know. Have you read any Alastair McIntyre? No. Okay. So Alastair McIntyre is fascinating and he writes a lot about the importance of narrative in making a life or living a life that has meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and what he says is that when you're looking at your life or you're thinking about a series of events that happened to you, there's one perspective that makes it into a story that has meaning and one perspective that makes it into a meaningless jumble of events. And if you, like, if you sit down to journal at the end of the day and you say, okay, well, I got up at, you know, seven, I ate eggs and bacon for breakfast. At 7.30, I got in my car and I drove to work. At 8 a.m., I started, you know, I started my first task. I did this thing, then I did this thing, then I did this thing, then I broke, I had a break for lunch at 11.45. Uh, if you just chronicle the events of your day, it's not a story, it's... A meaningless list of bullet points yeah. but if you look at those bullet points and you choose the events that lead towards some sort of goal then suddenly you're not dealing with a series of events you're dealing with a story even if the goal is really silly like if you that day are really really craving pad thai i say that because mm -hmm. i just had pad thai today because i was really craving pad thai if you're really craving pad thai and your whole, the whole day you're thinking about pad thai and you really want to get off work so that you can go get some pad thai, then the, if you're telling a story about that, then the events that you pick and choose to tell out of your day depend on that goal. There's some sort of goal at the end of it. And so you're going to stress uh, how hungry you were in the afternoon <laughs> or this thing that your boss said that made you think about the pad thai that you really wanted or... Mm -hmm. Um, how bad the lunch was that you brought and how little of it you ate because that made you want pad thai even more. You're focusing on details that contribute to this goal that you have. And suddenly that day is a story. And Alastair McIntyre, uh, this philosopher, takes that and applies it to your whole life and says, okay, so if your life doesn't have a telos, if it doesn't have a goal or an end, it doesn't have meaning. But if you think of your life as something that has a goal that you could either achieve or not achieve, if there's something that you want out of it, then it's a drama, and a drama has meaning. Which I think Don Quixote would 100% back up. He would say, yeah, that's absolutely true. You have a quest. He would, he would describe it as a quest, but it's the same thing. And uh, he has a particular person he wants to be, and he is going to act as if he were that person in in pursuit of that goal and he either gets there or he doesn't and one of the quotes from this movie that was the most uh, moving to me is that towards the end when don quixote is dying aldonza when she's repeating back to him these lessons that he's taught her she says uh you know that it doesn't matter whether you win or lose if you only follow the quest that victory or defeat is unimportant what matters is the goal what matters is what you're going after um and I think that's really what idealism here is. It's not a rejection of reality as it really is, but a pursuit of a goal that is so consistent and so uh, so emphatic, so driven that 
it requires your whole life. It requires acting as if this thing were really true because by acting as if it were true, you're breathing it into reality. Yeah, and I think the goal you choose really is important because you can choose the story where your T loss is the loser. Mm-hmm. I had I had a you know I had a friend once kind of do this little exercise with me where he said um, I'm going to ask you a series of questions and no matter what the question is I want you to answer no. And I said okay. He says, uh, "Is there a dragon?" I say no. Is there a knight in shining armor? I say no. He says, is there a damsel in distress? I say no. He says, do you know what to do? I say no. He says, okay, now I'm going to ask you the same series of questions again, but now you're going to say yes. Is there a dragon? Yes. Is there a knight in shining armor? Yes. Is there a damsel in distress? Yes. Do you know what to do? Yes. So that series of answers just to put you on a completely different trajectory. And that's the difference mm-hmm. between yes and no. And so you could take that to saying, um, well, you know, like that's just, you know, you could, you know, sort of get a little like sentimental about like the power of positive thinking. And maybe like that's, you know, and maybe that's the criticism that you could bring bring to this story is that you're just like thinking positively in spite of the misery and suffering of life. And you need to sober up to reality, which is actually kind of what the what what the characters in this story are kind of bringing to light when they actually, with the enchanter, right? The enchanter in the story comes and tries to force Don Quixote to quote unquote, accept reality is a kind of like, this is the noble thing to do is really just to own up to how much the world sucks and just accept that and to, and to surrender your dreams. Um, but I think that there's a, there's a different way of looking at it. And the way of looking at it is, really what Tolkien was talking about when he talked about escapism, because he was also criticized for being an escapist in his stories. Tolkien, you know, served in the the First First World War, and so, um, you know, it wasn't like he was any stranger to suffering. And so the question is, did he create these worlds of fantasy simply because he was denying the existence of reality? And this is what he says, and he he wrote an essay called This is um, on fairy stories. Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Or if, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls? The world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. In using escape in this way, the critics have chosen the wrong word. And what is more, they're confusing, not always by sincere error, the escape of the prisoner and the flight of the deserter. So escapism, escapism in the negative sense, that's the flight of the deserter. But someone who is trying to escape because you're in a prison, you're escaping towards something different. You're Mm -hmm. escaping towards an ideal. And that's a good thing. In fact, that's a noble and heroic thing. And one of the things that Cervantes says right at the beginning is life is a prison. And then the whole narrative happens, the whole frame narrative occurs in a prison. So you can see the metaphor kind of extends to that. And the fact that he leaves the prison at the end of the story, you could interpret as sort of depressing because it's like he dies. But 
you could also i mean but if but if you interpret it in the depressing way then you've missed the whole point of the story you know he is free from both the physical prison and the prison of life and that's that's a triumph well it's also i mean questionable whether he does die because he says i have no intention of burning and there's this suggestion that maybe he's going to tell this story to the inquisition just as he did to the prisoners and that the story is powerful enough that it might succeed. It might succeed in converting them too. But I'm glad you brought up the prison because one thing I think is fascinating about this story is it operates on a bunch of different levels and there's a lot of irony involved. And on, on, on the one hand, I actually think that the stage musical is maybe the best possible way that you could adapt the idea of Don Quixote because musicals require an inherent suspension of disbelief, right? In a way that you don't need to have for almost any other kind of uh, of art form, of storytelling art form. Obviously, when you're reading, you know, a science fiction story or a fantasy story and it's a novel or something, you do have to just suspend disbelief. And when you're watching a movie, you know that these are actors and you know that there's a cameraman right out of sight and uh, careful lighting. There's this, someone shining light on the scene from a few feet away. You know all that, but it's put together so carefully that you, it's easier to just suspend your disbelief. But with a musical, people don't burst into song perfectly on key, and there isn't a perfectly lined up soundtrack for a particular story. So to watch a musical means a really big leap in the suspension of disbelief, which I think is why some people can't make themselves like musicals and they don't really know why. Well, it's because it's really hard to suspend dis disbelief in that way. And either you do it happily because you want to, or you don't. And that's why people are so divided on musicals, I think. But then I think it's fascinating, given the fact that musicals already bring to light this tension between reality and illusion, we have this frame narrative in which Cervantes is dramatizing this story to an audience of prisoners and when he leaves them, he leaves behind converts. Um, just like within the context of the story, Don Quixote is leaving behind his converts. So if we're thinking about this in terms of layers, I think it's what interesting do you mean, to think what about... Do you mean by, what do you mean by converts? Uh, so Aldonza initially thinks of herself as a prostitute, thinks of the world as dirty and ugly, and the fact that there's nothing redeeming in the world. And at the end, she's calling herself Dulcinea. She walks away with this new vision of reality and that she's going to carry this torch. And then when Cervantes leaves the prison, he, the, the prisoners are all singing the impossible dream. <laughs> They're singing the theme song of Don Quixote. Um, and there's this suggestion that maybe they too are going to see the world differently from now on. So we have two layers of conversion. We have the story within the story, which is uh, Dulcinea maybe Sancho as well. Maybe even uh, there's a suggestion that maybe the priest is starting to get swayed a little bit, um, that there are some other people, the innkeeper, uh, some of the characters. And then there's the second layer, which is within the prison. These prisoners are being converted. And then I think there's a third layer, which is we also are an audience and we also are watching a story. And maybe we are invited to be converts too to this way of seeing the world, in which case there's a suggestion that we are also prisoners. So if that's true, if that tension between illusion and the stage and then the real world 
is there. Uh, are we supposed to be prisoners? And if we are prisoners, what are the writers of this musical suggesting that we need to be freed from? What's the prison? Well, 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 life is the prison. At least, I mean, uh, that's why I would say that the, that the, the, the statement that Cervantes makes at the beginning sets up a metaphor for the whole story. Um, because that's exactly what he says, is that life is a prison, and then the whole story happens within the prison. Um, so the question, so so you, you said it was whether it was like up to to interpretation, whether whether um, he, he, he lived or died um, at the end. I think that at least for, I guess, the purposes of the way the prison functions it almost doesn't matter um because there is at least if there's not a physical death there definitely is a a metaphorical death going on here but i mean it's it's when we're 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 being constrained the way we're supposed to be looking to at this i think is that we're being constrained by the prison of our own bodies and we're limited beings and that's something that we have to wrestle with the fact that we can't burst out in song and we can't have those honest conversations i think is something that we actually have a deep desire to do those things um and so yeah i you know i understand i think i think that people have not the people who who do disregard musicals just have not been converted to musicals but there's a reason why there's a reason why that we respond to musicals. And I think that one of the reasons why we like people, pe people like musicals at all is the reason why you would like any kind of piece of art that kind of diverges from or allows people to express things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to express. And one of the things that you can do in musicals is that um, you can simply explicitly state your emotions or your relation to another person in a way that if you were trying to tell a story with sort of realistic dialogue, so to speak, then you kind of have to circumvent those emotions and sort of infer what the characters are feeling. But we want to, but that that's because we're constrained by the prison of our bodies and being constrained to the prison of our bodies. We're never actually allowed. We we're all, we're, we're constrained not only by that, but by all of these kind of rules in society, the sort of things, unspoken rules about manners and etiquette and things that you should say and not say and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, a, a musical kind of just like allows you to to experiment with a kind of level of intimacy between people that you wouldn't. I mean, like and it also sort of truncates time, you know, like, for example, this could only happen in a musical where, the, you know, Sir of uh, Don Quixote comes and meets Aldonza for the first time and then just starts singing this love song to her right away. And, yeah, and, and she's swept up by this and it's like love at first sight. But we're actually and you wouldn't be able to accept that like in any other setting other than a musical. But what a musical does is it allows us to kind of step outside of time. And exist in the world of like, I guess, platonic forms or the world of ideals where, you know, these ideas, like you said, the, it's an idea musical. I mean, I think that's 
also fundamentally what a musical is, is that it allows you to experiment with ideas in an artistic way um, without having to be be constricted to 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 a timeline. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think that's a good segue into talking a little bit about the character of Aldonza slash Dulcinea. Um, I think it's worth noting, actually, that when you look at a list of the characters in this musical, you have Cervantes slash Don Quixote, because it's the same character played by the same actor, and then you have Aldonza slash Dulcinea, which is an interesting choice because she's a single character, even more than, um, even more than Cervantes and Don Quixote are a single character because it's Cervantes playing Don Quixote, but uh, Aldonza, being her her given name, and then the fact that she ends up calling herself Dulcinea, she's actually listed in the script as these the two names, this dual person. Um, mm-hmm. So I think she's really central to this story, being the person maybe who changes the most from the beginning to the end. And I think maybe the biggest questions that I have about her are, is she, what is she really? Is she really a prostitute? Is she what she sees herself as? Or is she the lady that Don Quixote sees her as? And in that light, is is Don Quixote changing her? Or is he seeing what she really is? Um, does she change or does she become what she always was? Or both? What's going on with that character? I would say probably definitely both. But I think that also... I think that's why she's such a moving person, too. But one of the things that she's continually insisting on is that you see me who I really, as I, as I really am. That's what she keeps on saying. Take the clouds from your eyes and see me as I really am. You have shown me the sky, but what good is the sky to a creature who'll never do better than crawl of all the cruel bastards who badgered and battered me. You are the cruelest of all. See me as I really am, and I'm 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 a prostitute. Um and I think that that is something that we find really moving, the fact that he doesn't see her as that, and he just simply refuses to see it. And it's almost not like, you know, and that's where the element of madness comes in, because is it that he's consciously doing it, or does he really see a princess? Because it doesn't seem to be obvious whether when we look at him and when we watch his mannerisms, whether he's simply just pretending that she's a princess as what uh william blake once said does a firm persuasion that a thing is so so make it so and i guess in this case yes does Mm -hmm. make it so um but i think that that's something that we all kind of struggle with is we all struggle with kind of a sense of self-hatred to some extent and and self-loathing because we know we know we're losers and but we also know that we're we're more than just losers at the same time and so we always are kind of like we're schizophrenic. We are mad. We are mm-hmm. mad <laughs> because we we go back and forth between thinking that we're the greatest people in the world, that we're acting like total narcissists, and then plunging into the pit of despair and saying that you know we're we're miserable people, horrible. We're horrible. At the same time, like 
that's a condition that's not just people we categorize as madman is just people who have taken that to the extreme. Uh, Blaise Pascal once said, men are so necessarily mad that not to be mad would amount to another form of madness. Um, but anyway, uh, Dulcinea, I think that one of the things that she's struggling with is she wants us to acknowledge the reality of the fact that life has fallen, right? That, that we are fallen. Um, but she's also torn by the fact that it's possible for me to be redeemed at the same time. Mm-hmm. And part of that is being cho- chosen or allowing Don Quixote to, to see her in a certain way. Is it so important? Everything. My whole life. You spoke to me. And everything was different. I spoke to you. And you looked at me. And you called me by another name. Dulcinea. Dulcinea. Once you found a girl and called her Dulcinea. And I think that that's essentially, and this is this is essentially, this is where we kind of get to Christianity here because Jesus actually does encourage us to kind of creatively change reality in in a similar way and I think there's actually a character who who said Jesus was mad um in this story but yep but Jesus says for example when he was talking about how you should uh care for for the lost and the sick and the poor that you did it in my name so Matthew 25, 35 through 40, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me naked and you closed me. I was ill and you comforted me in prison and you came to visit me. I assure you, often as you did it for the least among you, you did it for me. So all of these people who are in these destitute situations, who are anything short of heroic or beautiful or holy, Jesus sanctions those people and says, these people are all holy. These all, all of these people are the face of Christ. And that's kind of like a really difficult thing to wrestle with. But it seems that it's very clear in scripture that he chooses, uh, he encourages us to simply see that these people are holy and eternal beings and also to see ourselves as that way. Um, to take on the identity of son, you know, or adopted son. Mm-hmm. And and the idea of taking on a new name is something that's really interesting and important in scriptures. But it's like, yeah, we're, we're changing our identity. We're, we were once prostitute. Prostitute is something that's an image that's used in the Bible continually to a son or a daughter. And that is we're adopted into a family. And that's our title now. And having a title, I think, is also embedded into the code of chivalry the fact that you've lived up to this ideal and you're and you're given a new given a new title is is part of the chivalric ideal yeah well on that note a couple things um it reminds me of the the 2015 live action movie version of cinderella which i love i think it's beautiful and really well done and i think maybe my favorite scene in that version of cinderella 
is there's this moment that happens that doesn't happen in the original the original Disney cartoon version where Cinderella when she comes down the stairs to meet the prince for the first time as her lowborn maid self not in her beautiful gown or with the glass slippers or her hair done up or anything she's just herself um she's like a scullery maid and she's coming down the stairs and she pauses and she looks in a mirror and there's this narrator who says perhaps the greatest risk any of us will ever take is to be seen as we really are and she goes down the stairs and she sees the prince and she makes this really lovely little speech that basically ends with saying that idea like this is what I really am I'm not the princess I appeared to you as I'm just a simple country girl who loves you and he she she becomes a princess through the fact that he loves her and then marries her um but it's important that she's seen that she shows herself as she is so that she can be called something new something different and so that that calling means something and i think that's what aldonza is getting at when she keeps begging don quixote to see her as she really she really is because don quixote calling her dulcinea doesn't mean anything unless he knows what she really is for him to see a prostitute and call her a beautiful lady or uh dote on her or say that he wants to take her token into battle all that if if he thinks that that's what she really is and that she's not a prostitute that she really is a virgin if he really believes all those things and doesn't see what she really is then that calling doesn't mean anything what means something is when he sees what she really is and still calls her dulcinea when he knows that she's aldonza and gives her a new name anyway which i think we talked about earlier does seem like what he's doing she tells him repeatedly who she actually is, and he doesn't contradict her. He doesn't say, no, I don't believe that you ever were a prostitute or anything. He just continues to call her Dulcinea. He calls her something different. Yeah, well, I think there's also something deeper than that, too. I mean, I think that there's a sense of what you're saying is absolutely true, but I think there's also another sense um, in which by... In the act of choosing to call her Dulcinea, he actually sees Dulcinea. I mean, and he can't see. Is it is it that, is it that he's seeing both of those things at once? Or right. No, I think it has to be both. He sees. Well, well, well. I mean, there's this idea in in the Bible that in 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 scriptures that you are that your sins are are actually forgotten, that they're erased, that they it's like they were never there, and so. I'm not denying that the the idea that 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 sin has to be acknowledged, but it also seems to me that in the act of redemption, it, there is a sense in which it's not seen at all, and that it, it it's get erased, just completely banished from mind, and that's you know, in total forgetfulness or, or forgetting sin, and you know, choosing to tell the better story or choosing to forget those things. I mean, is part of what forgiveness is. Yeah, I mean that's true. I guess what I'm saying, though, is that the the act of forgiveness doesn't mean anything unless there was something to forgive and unless you knew that there was something to forgive. Um, I don't know, in a situation like marital infidelity, for example, to forgive an affair or something like that has weight, like that has power 
but if you never knew that the affair happened, you can't forgive it because you weren't aware yeah. of it. So, so I don't know if you can, if it, if we want to, if it's, if it's arguable, at least in this, in the sense to say that Don Quixote saw her as, as, as a prostitute because I think that the narrative invites us not to speculate too much on the internal mindset of Don Quixote himself because he's kind of he's kind of an image or an idea and we're not meant to we we're not we're not given a a doorway into his mind but I think that the narrative does encourage us to think of Cervantes the character inviting the woman in the oh Gosh, I forgot her name. The woman who's in the in the oh, yeah. final layer of irony. I don't remember what her name was. I also don't remember her name. <laughs> okay, so so just to back up on all the layers of irony. So Cervantes in the prison extends his hand to a woman in the prison who I don't know even is given a name and asks her to play Aldonza. And I think there's a point where he invites her to play this part and he's and he basically says i need a part of a woman who has been through immense amount of suffering um and and has almost given up on life and he looks at her in like this very incisive way like he kind of knows that she's been through something and so there's very it's very clear that cervantes is forgiving this woman you know or redeeming this woman and i think that that's the action of forgiveness right there. And then what we're looking at in the interplay between um, Don Quixote and Aldonza is a more simplified view. And I don't think we're meant to get super introspective about it because it's, 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 it's more like these are puppets and we're playing with these puppets and what's happening. The redemptive arc is happening in the, in the prison. I'm trying to find the name of the character. And I regret to say that I'm failing. I think that maybe the character may actually not have a name. Yeah, okay, so, I mean, Sophia Lauren is only billed as playing Dulcinea slash Aldonza, so it sounds like maybe the the prison character either actually is named Aldonza or doesn't actually have a name. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, it reminds me, I mean, the whole... The whole discussion of calling someone by a name reminds me of a couple things. First of all, in traditional Christian conversion, um, in all sorts of forms, but uh, I'm most familiar, I think, with the Eastern Orthodox version of this, which is where when you're chrismated, which is like confirmation in a Western church, um, you are given a new baptismal name. And when the priest communes you, when he gives you communion, he calls you by your baptismal name, not your given birth name. And it's not that people stop calling you by your, your birth name, that continues to be your name, but you also have this Christian name now, and that's where the idea of having a Christian name comes from, is you, you have a baptismal name or a name that is related to a saint or that connects you to God in some way that your birth name doesn't in quite the same way. Um, which I think is really a lovely idea. And also reminds me a lot of the relationship between the name of Aldonza and Dulcinea, that she doesn't cease being Aldonza necessarily because she still has that past and that doesn't, uh, she can't go back and undo it. 
but she also is now Dulcinea and she takes on that name and she chooses it for herself and that there's this last scene where Sandra tries to call her Aldonza and she corrects him and says, no, it's Dulcinea. And that she has taken full ownership of this new name and that's what she really wants to be called by now. Um, which reminds me of Isaiah in Isaiah 43. The first verse says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And that, that's, what, that's what God does to us, is he looks at uh, sinners and prostitutes and gives us a new name, calls us by name, and that new name means that we belong to him. And that means that we are converts in the same way that, well, maybe not in the same way, but in a similar way to how Dulcinea is a convert of Don Quixote, that she's going to see the world differently and act in a different way, and that she is going to follow the quest and know that it doesn't matter if she wins or loses as long as, long as she follows the quest. And that we do that too, that we take on a quest and a new name and become converts just to maybe a higher level of reality than the world of night errantry. What's that? Is that the theme music? <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> well, it looks like we've come to the end of our podcast. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This is where we break into song because the world really is a musical. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the 1987 Danish drama Babette's Feast. Until then, friends, onward to glory we go. You shortened the outro, I noticed. <laughs> I know you can see something inside.